back on this godforsaken platform. Platform? On this godforsaken planet. <coughs> it, it makes me sick to my stomach talking about this. Talking about what? Yeah, what Israel's doing. I know. It's, yeah. Well, they've done it. But it helps to do it. It's good company, you know, good people. Yeah. Because you can imagine, like, if you're out there, you're basically on your own. Maybe you know a friend or someone in your family who also sees it as you do, but you don't see them often and stuff. So Most of the time, you just ingest it yourself and sort of, you know, rage quietly or despair. Yeah. Does on any- your own, you know. Horrible. Does anybody horrible does anybody not know what's going on? Yeah, they do. Everyone knows. Everybody? But do they care? Well, to different degrees. It's hard to keep it up, though. When it's six weeks, like, you know. Yeah. What are you going to do? Where are you down? Stop eating, you know, altogether. Or, like, you, you can't, you have to keep going. It's, it's, it's like when someone when someone you know dies, you know, you, you can't just stop. You have to get back up and mm-hmm. keep going. Yeah. So six weeks in, over twelve thousand dead at this point, tens of thousands re- relocating south, um, and the Israelis. There's footage of the Israelis firing on them too, mm-hmm. with their donkeys and carts getting shot at. Um, that's one out of every two hundred Gazans dead so far. Yesterday, Israel bombed two UN-run schools. Both were full of children at the time. An estimated five hundred dead kids. Um, also last week, they blew up Gaza's parliament building and mosques. Um, they seem to be deliberately targeting refugee camps at this point. I mean, there's no harm in just making that assumption. Um, or indeed any facility building large enough that could house refugees. So obviously the hospitals as well. Um, I presume so that they keep encouraging people to move south, um, southwards. They're also, of course, deliberately... They must be deliberately targeting journalists. Um, there are over 60 at this point. It's creepy because they seem to know when the journalists are on air or at work because they're at work and they hear that they're home with 11, 12-plus people inside were all killed. Um, you know, which completely makes a mockery of Israel, Israel not knowing what, would, what was coming on October 7th because, like we've said before, they know everything... Where everything is at any given time in real time in mm-hmm. Gaza, they have total ISR oversight, as they call it, in military terms of everything that moves in that place. <clears throat> um, the Israelis have now. Oh yeah, well, this is the main narrative shift in the last day or so. Remember the justification for targeting Al Shifa Hospital and then taking it over. We saw the results of that last week. The Israeli army moved in and showed off, quote-unquote, evidence of this Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza City being the, quote, headquarters, the beating heart of the Hamas command Mm. infrastructure. Um, They've now shifted that to, um, actually, it turns out the real headquarters of Hamas is in Khan Yunus, the largest city in the southern sector of Gaza Strip. That's convenient. Do we even need to tell people what they're doing? I mean, no, it's obvious. It's I don't know. I don't know. This is like my, my approach to the whole thing is like, I don't know. I look at social media. I look at the media, mainstream media and stuff, at what they're saying. And it's like, what, what are you all talking about? What, why are you still talking about this? You know what I mean? It's like, why? 
Why you? It's 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 not rocket science. Hmm. It's rockets. Uh, it's rockets it, are involved. But rockets yeah. are involved, but it's not rocket science. Um, it's you know the whole hostages thing is an, is, is a ruse as well. Obviously, you know, um, it's like it's like, it's almost like there's no context. People don't know. They do know the context, but they ignore the context. They're all living in the moment. Mm. They're all practicing mindfulness. Yeah, and, li- and living in the moment only. It's the Western religion, yeah. The, these devoid times. of context, and they only analyze what's actually happening from day to day. Devoid of any context, so they only have analyze what's happened over the past six weeks <clears throat> since October seventh. Uh, in itself, without any longer, broader context. Um, which is bizarre. Like nobody does that. Nobody ever does that. Right. Do you know uh, what I mean? History began six weeks. <laughs> yeah. Ago, exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, well, they they have form. History began in Eastern Europe on February twenty second, twenty twenty two. Right. You know. Yes. Putin, Putin just invaded. You know. Because people don't know and they're not interested and they don't want to know. I don't know. And also, apparently you now another thing that's, you know, that it's a new thing that. Um, has never been true in human history, but it is now, and it's that you can kill uh, civilians, um, like indiscriminately kill civilians, while still being the greatest, well, or the only democracy in the Middle East, and you know, closely aligned with the greatest democracy on the planet. You know, with the freedom-loving, great democracy that is America and Western Europe by extension, and by extension, Israel. Um, so. Countries that are that have that have that label or see themselves in that tradition of being the, the freest and most democratic countries in the world can sanction indiscriminate killing of civilians, including women and children, and it's, it, it doesn't change their status. It doesn't make them, you know, tyrants. Or any other, the opposite of freedom and democracy, yeah. right? It doesn't make them the opposite of that. Usually, when when any country you know slaughters uh, indiscriminately slaughters civilians, that they, they, they get throughout human history, they get you know, Some maybe not throughout human history, but certainly in, in the modern era, they get they get bad bad rep, they get bad press, but pushback of some kind. Yeah, they don't they don't come out of it looking good, you know. They don't get to hold the moral high ground, you know. Mm. Um, but apparently, Israel somehow managed to. Hold, claim that it has the moral high ground and there's people who, who support it. And it's amazing. I mean, I suppose it's natural. Like when, when, when the Ukraine business started, like all the Ukraine, pro-Ukrainian people came out. Like I don't know to what extent those are paid or like they had the NAFO trolls mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff who were not paid but organized in a certain mm-hmm. sense. But as soon as this thing happened, it was like very quickly it was uh, the, the pro-Israelis were just all over Twitter, you know, and they've, and they've gained. I just, they just pop up in my feeds all over the place, you know, um, which I suppose is normal it's the it's the social uh it's a soapbox right it's a it's a, it's a street corner a digital street corner um speaker's corner and it um so you're going to get people expressing their opinion but it's weird just to see um them all trying to justify what is clearly unjustifiable yeah don't know. You, yeah <clears throat> what do you do well it's more particular more particularly baffling for known public figures of some degree of fame or another mm. expressing support. You know, random random accounts that pop up, sure, you can dismiss those. or They tend to be outnumbered. But um, 
loves a high number of people who are um, public figures. We, Jordan Peterson, <clears throat> for example, articulating support. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's hard. Like like I. I I like to think that I question myself all the time, my narratives and stuff. You know, I have a narrative. I see, you know, what my beliefs, what I, my perspective on any given situation. I like to question those and put on the other side's perspective. You know, um, and I, when I hear people like you mentioned Jordan Peterson or, who, or whoever who are pro-Israel and stuff, I go, you know, okay, um, you know, let's see if I can actually adopt their position and see if it, hmm. see if I can make it fit in a certain sense, see if I can understand where they're coming from. And to be honest, I can't, at least not. If those people supporting Israel claim to be uh, moral people or, or see themselves as good people and who who, who are pro justice and pro you know um, pro peace pro and pro T truth and pro truth yeah sorry saw so the beginning of an interview with uh, Candace Owens did with uh, Norman Finkelstein and he she introduced him. You know, here's Professor Finkelstein, published blah, 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 and he's pro-Palestinian, blah, blah, blah. Hi, welcome, and off you And he said, I'd just like to clarify something at the start. I didn't get into this as pro-Palestinian, mm. per se. For truth, yeah. And for the truth and justice, mm-hmm. resulting from the truth of any given situation. Mm. That's how I found myself in the 1990s, reading as much as I could, independent mm. reports. He said, I'm not interested in what <coughs> the Israelis say now here, and what Hamas or Fatah or the PLO say over there. What can independent voices tell me about the situation? Mm. And I built it on that. And that's, you know, so it's, it's about, it's truth, mm-hmm. which is well, the truth what is, truth. we would like to be driving all our favorite voices on, who apparently do speak for truth yeah. and justice on a whole raft of other issues. Yeah. And yeah, what's that? So I don't flat. understand how they miss it on, on this one. How they miss because it's glaringly obvious. Right. Other other positions they've taken the truth and justice position on other issues, more complicated, and more nuanced, and harder to actually come down on the side of on one side or the other based on yeah. just using truth or justice. The, the more nuanced, but this one's super easy. Like, yeah. So how can you miss this? The really easy one, but be be be, be able to figure out the more more complicated one. It's weird. 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 I suppose that's, it's I, just I have some ideas, but... Ideological possession. Um, I titled the show, well, we can adapt this, but <clears throat> why is Israel security do or die for the West? Um, I'm going to try and answer it. But first I want to kind of do more news updates, so to speak, on the issue. Uh, we just, yeah, people know this already, but um, I don't remember if you said it on an earlier show in the last month, mm. or to me, just before a show or something. But we were thinking about what's Israel's plan here, because this this will naturally come to an end, like all the other ones, cast led, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, in 2014, 2009, so on. Um, and we'll be back to something of the status quo, and there'll be a refugee crisis, a humanitarian crisis. So... Um, would, would you would you would you think that's changed now? I mean, they do seem to be more forthright in having a plan to expel Gazans altogether. That was a plan all along. Okay, that is yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you don't realize that, then you, you're, you're messing. I mean, you're, you're you're deluding yourself. I mean, one example is I don't have the video here, but it's from last week. I think they were so somewhere in in, in Gaza, um, in northern Gaza, they they bulldozed. Uh, 
memorial to Yasser Arafat. Right. Right? Yeah. And then there's this one, um, which was just a few days ago, where they, I don't know if people remember, the Mavi Marmara, um, which was a, it's called the Freedom Flotilla, um, back in 2010. Um, so this was a, a fleet of ships, basically, but one of the biggest ones, was the biggest ship was the Mavi Marmara, and they had 10,000 tons of medicine, food, and construction, because there was a blockade of, 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 of Gaza at the time, and they were trying to bring... Uh, so it was an international coalition of peace activists. Um, and this particular ship came from Turkey. And this te- yes, yeah. Marmara. Right. And it had Turk, a lot of Turkish people on it. It had several hundred people on it. 700 passengers on it. And, and <clears throat> 700 passengers and crew members. That's it down in the bottom left there, if you just scroll down a little bit. Um, and they to tried to break the blockade because at the time the Israelis were blockading Gaza, which is like, again, I which mean... Which had been ongoing since 05. I mean, I don't know. What the people? Where's Jordan Peterson in 2010? Where was he? In watching that Toronto University or, or many other, just oblivious to it all, right? Anyway, yeah. so people have to understand, you know, that we've been watching this for a very long time, and um, and we also come from a particular perspective that we'll we'll maybe talk about as well later. At least I come from a particular perspective, but I think it's general as well to us here. Um, but this Mavi Mamara, you know, tried to get all this aid into Gaza. The Israelis boarded it at sea and killed uh, seven, nine, nine of the Turkish members on board and brutalized a bunch of others. Um, I was actually invited to go on it and I decided not to um, because, I don't know, um, I, had some, I was washing my hair. No, um, there's no point, you know, 700 people. What, it was, what could one more Well, the only, the, what was being offered to me was like an opportunity to, to, to report to be there, to, 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 be, to, to provide reports for our yeah. social media at the time. <clears throat> anyway, uh, it didn't go. But um, they. So the, my point here is that they there, there's a monument there. If you click on the right hand pic- picture, um, there's a monument. Uh, that's it on the left. Uh, a monument to that in, in Gaza, uh, the silvery thing with the ball on top. And at, at the port there in Gaza. Yeah, and and the Israelis, you know, decided to take the time to destroy that. Uh, bulldoze it, I suppose, knock it down. So, between Arafat, the memorial to Arafat, um, who's, you know, dead quite a long time, 20 years, and goes back a long time, and then this, which was just a memorial to an, the, the sentiment of the, of many people from around the world who wanted to provide aid, medicine, etc., to Palestinians, they decided to destroy that. So, they're destroying the history of the Palestinian people here, at least the recent history, that, that shows an intent to, to wipe them, wipe their history out. Mm. Um, it's more than just getting Hamas. Well, it's going to have to do there. with getting Hamas, really. It's really yeah. got nothing to do with that. Um, so their plan all along has been to, like I said, to, to this, was, this was their 9-11. It was their kind of cataclysmic event, their new Pearl Harbor, Israel's new Pearl Harbor. And of course, again, there's some evidence that it was contrived in in one way or another, and you know, trumped up the number of deaths. There's just recent report from Haaretz saying that Israeli, at least one Israeli Apache attack helicopter, killed X number, unknown number of people at the concert by just firing missiles and and, and machine guns at at um, at cars. Uh, not that. not distinguishing between. They couldn't distinguish. Let's say they they claim they couldn't distinguish between. You know, were these people Hamas who were in the cars? Don't know. Let's just shoot at the cars and see what happens. So an unknown number of people that were until now ascribed to, or deaths of people at the concert that were ascribed to Hamas, 
have to be laid at the doorstep of the, uh, the door of the Israelis themselves, the Israeli military. I have that report, Haaretz. It's, it's in Hebrew, though. Um, no, there's an English version. Yeah. You have one? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is interesting. <laughs> we all, everyone knew that, but whatever. This report was That's this, this basic claim that the response to Hamas, the Hamas incursion into southern Israel was basically crazy and just resulted in Israeli military killing a lot of its own. That was already in the news, in Israeli news, in... Eyewitnesses. At the end of October. In the Kibbutz, so, yeah. Three weeks ago. This um, is then, the- that was fact-checked as fake news when Israel published the... Remember the greeny footage? That's, mm. I think it's infrared footage from the Apache helicopter shooting at cars, mm-hmm. everything fleeing fields and stuff in mm. the area. And then t- on Twitter, for example, there was a community note attached to any claim that this was an Apache shooting at festival mm-hmm. goers at mm-hmm. this rave. But we've already heard the pilots of one of those helicopters from two weeks prior say, yeah, we, we weren't sure, we were just shooting at everything, mm-hmm. everything that moved. Yeah. Anyway, so Harrods then this week, yeah, this is on fake news that, um, and of course it's not in the title; it's in the actual. It's only a short article, anyway. But um, it's uh, Israeli security establishment. Hamas likely didn't have advanced knowledge of the Nova Festival, so basically, in a way, undermine their argument there as well that um, showing intent, showing yeah that there was no one that can't have been intent because they didn't know um, uh, that um, that they only found out about it through drones or from those flying in parachutes, <laughs> flying in parachutes. Uh, anyway, I think that might be paragliders. Yeah, yeah parachutes. Just a mistranslation. The growing ass- assessment in Israel's security establishment. <laughs> growing assessment. Yes, we took six weeks to figure this out. Is that Hamas terrorists who committed the October seven massacre didn't have advanced knowledge about the Nova Music Festival, and it's based on terrorist organisations and blah blah blah, uh, which revealed the terrorists intended to infiltrate the kibbutzim. Which yeah, that makes more sense that when Ham- Hamas fighters and other PLM, you know, Palestinian resistance fighters in Gaza stage their breakout that they were heading for the nearest kibbutzim which were just a few kilometers away from the Gaza border um, according to a police source the investigation also indicates that an IDF combat helicopter that arrived on the scene and fired at terrorists <laughs> there apparently also hit some some festival participants so in total 364 people allegedly were that's the official figure were, were, were killed at the festival so some I, th- I think some I think I don't, yeah, I think we can accept that figure. That's the first figure I've seen them use. That's not a bloody round number. Mm-hmm. And the, they have released, well, I've seen anyway, some footage of the aftermath and there are piles of bodies, mm-hmm. different tents and behind bars and stuff. It's grotesque. Um, so 364, let's go with that, right? That's how many people killed there at the rave. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what gets me is that though they still have a round number for the overall mm. fatalities from the nearby kibbutzim plus this. Mm-hmm. It's, still, it's still around 1,200. Mm-hmm. Now, they, they admitted this week that um, some, peop- some of the images they had previously shown, international media, uh, charred bodies and so on, mm-hmm. were not, in fact, Israeli civilians. They were Hamas. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they can be sure of that, but they're saying the bodies are so charred we can't tell. Okay, fine. That, you would expect that. There's such a... You've left such a mess by firing missiles on places you don't know. Mm-hmm. But what still gets me is that they're still using a round number. Mm-hmm. 
okay, you don't know who's who, but how many? Yeah. That's not established yet. Six weeks later. Now, in Gaza, right, there's a lot of critique. Is it counter-propaganda, maybe? Um, well, you know, the Gaza health authorities, in brackets, run by Hamas, they say the numbers of dead are up to this much. But, you know, it's a war zone. Exactly, it's a war zone. It's chaotic. Maybe it's inaccurate. Maybe it's more. Whatever. I mean, they can't get a precise number day to day because the bombs keep falling. But in Israel, the situation's secure. And six weeks later, they can't even give their own population the exact number. Like, maybe you don't know. Maybe it's messy. Like we saw in, uh, in Hawaii with the wildfire. What they did was they had a number of death toll that was going up. And mm-hmm. then there were people missing. Mm-hmm. And they had to confirm whether they were in the town or not. And then eventually those two numbers settle on, on an exact figure. But they, they don't have a missing number in Israel. No, it's just I mean, around twelve hundred. Well, nobody can't. Nobody's gonna. Nobody with any sense is taking that, that that figure as as accurate, and also nobody with any sense is believes that, given the evidence, like the evidence that we've just talked about, and also the evidence of eyewitnesses and survivors from the kibbutzim, who said that uh, explicitly, one, one woman at least said that um, that most of the people killed in her kibbutzim, which was a hundred, I think, were killed in crossfire. She said, I, and she even said, like, yeah, it was our side that. Yeah. Them. You know, there were tanks destroying houses, all that kind of stuff. So the whole thing, I mean, that's, that's first-hand evidence. That's eyewitness, on-the-scene evidence. And then you have statements by Israeli helicopter pilots and you have reports from Haret, Haret saying that they actually killed people. So nobody can take that figure of 1,200, as, which is being used, to say uh, and run with it as Hamas killed 1,200 uh, Israelis. They clearly didn't. Based on the evidence, they, mm. well, it's very unlikely that they did. Mm. So the question is, how many did they actually kill? And how many civilians did they kill? Did they kill any civilians? Don't know. The point, point about it is that's all, that's all by design, basically. Because, like we talked about in previous shows, the Israelis, various different luminaries in the Israeli establishment, in their political and, and social and cultural establishment, have for literally more than 20 years, but certainly for 20 years in a kind of concerted way, have had a a plan, a desire, a strong wish to deal once and for all with their Palestinian problem. And that means getting rid of the Palestinians completely, including from the West Bank, ideally, but certainly from Gaza. So they've had this on the record as saying that this is necessary, it needs to happen, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, the time wasn't right. They've said this for this this to happen, but we need, you know, we need to wait until the time is right, and it will be right at some point. And they even said that one historian said that they needed some kind of cataclysmic event um, in order to get public support behind this final solution for the Palestinians, or for at least for the people in Gaza. And then one appeared, uh, and that's why they call it Israel's 9-11, because, uh, yeah, it, not in the sense that they mean it, <laughs> it is actually true uh, that it was used uh, as a justification to fulfill long-standing or to achieve long-standing goals or to enact long-standing um, or take long-wished-for long, long uh, action in a certain direction. In the case of America 9-11, as we know with PNAC documents and all that kind of stuff, there was clearly in the American establishment and think tank establishment the actual bureaucracy behind the government that they wanted to project American power into the Middle East to offset the change in 
what I say, saw it even at the time, the coming change in the kind of potential change in the global world order where America would no longer uh, be the hegemon and they needed to project the American military en masse into strategic areas of the globe. And they did that with Iraq and Afghanistan and then Syria and then Libya. So, mm, yeah. this is Israel saying in exactly the same way that they've had a long-standing desire to get rid of the Palestinians, but they didn't have the political capital or will <clears throat> or, or the or public consent, they they figured, or even international, uh, enough international sympathy or or acquiescence in order to 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 take that kind of an action because they know it's going to be fairly brutal. You know what I mean? It's going to be seen in the absence of some catastrophic or catalyzing or uh, cataclysmic event. Were in the case, in, uh, in the case of nine, America's nine eleven. America itself was attacked, or in the case of Israel, Israel was attacked. You need to be seen to be attacked uh, in order to justify uh, carrying out the kind of aggression that they knew was going to be necessary to achieve their goals. In the case of America, invade Iraq, invade Afghanistan, um, kick off a civil war and fuel and fund a civil war in, in, in Syria, uh, bomb Libya, kill Gaddafi. Um, unless you unless you're already a victim, unless you can show that you've been inflicted a serious and deadly wound that justifies that kind of action, if you just take that, do that, do what they did off the cuff. You're, you're seen as a if you do it without any justification, you're seen as um, as a a global tyrant, and you can't be talking about freedom and democracy, right? Uh, and the same way Israel would be already by a lot of people seen as a as, as an oppressor of the Palestinian people, would be seen as just a bloodthirst. It would be you know, ten times worse if they just decided one day to do what they've done in Gaza in the absence of this um, very helpful wound mm. that was inflicted them, inflicted on them by uh, and, supposedly... And they know it, that's not enough. You have to keep keeping your people on side. So when there is an in-your-face atrocity, your, let's say, natural allies... Mm-hmm. will have something to counter. So this this one, for example, from a couple of days ago on CNN. Um, CNN analysis. Video suggests IDF might have rearranged weaponry at Al-Shifa prior to news crew's visit. Yeah. Uh, not just rearranged, but planted. Mm. Um, you know, they bring them in, oh, there's weapons. Oh, look at this. There's a stash of weapons right here behind the MRI machine. Mm-hmm. Like anyone who knows anything about that it wouldn't have been left there because you can't leave it in the same room as an MRI machine because it's, it's magnetic. magnetic. Um, uh, you keep them on board. It's not enough just to have the wound. You've got to keep ticking it over, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's... It's, it's, wow. it's stunning gaslighting. Like, I mean, it's I don't stunning. know. I don't, it's, and it's not even gaslighting. Well, I suppose it is gaslighting, yeah. But it's amazing that it's It's, it's, it's mockery working. if you're... If if you know what it really is, it makes a mockery of. Yeah, it's stretching the whole <laughs> narrative, their narrative, way too far. Like, I mean, when you find yourself <clears throat> killing twelve thousand civilians mostly um, over the course of six weeks, uh, two thirds of them women and children, and then you actually open your mouth to try and justify it as a democracy, as a, we're peace loving people, we're just defending ourselves, and we just killed twelve thousand people, most of them women and children. I mean, okay, yeah. well, well, most people sit back and go, okay, but n- nobody believes you. Of course, of course no one believes you. Everybody thinks you're just, you're just massacring civilians. 
and they'll never forget it. Only the super super dupes are gonna gonna buy that narrative. Like there's being duped, and then there's a, a big, totally a, a big guy, element of fear as well. And um, Netanyahu had a warning for any Westerners who might be thinking of joining the cha- changing position, or I don't know, condemning Israel rather than Hamas. Oh yeah. Uh, don't even think that he says, or I'll come after you. Netanyahu warns of terror attack in West if Israel loses to Hamas. Oh yeah, is that a threat? Wow, is he? It's ostensibly it's a warning, is he? Netanyahu threatens terror attack in West. Can we change that word? Warns of to threatens. Right on cue. Within a day, the New York Post reported that a neo-Nazi nineteen pleads guilty to plotting mass shooting at Michigan synagogue. That probably predates. It was a trial, so the incident is probably older. But that's yeah, that's the kind of thing we look forward to now, I suppose. Um, more atrocities, to, more wounds, you know, to to keep you mm. in fear of, well, ostensibly of Hamas slash Iran slash Islamist terrorism slash migrants, right? Mm. But really, it's going to become <laughs> clearer and clearer to people that it's to keep you afraid of what yeah. the powers that be could do. Yeah, I don't, you can't really push that so far. There's this guy, I don't know who this guy is, actually, I never saw him before, his name is Matt Wallace. He's got a million, 1.3 million followers on Twitter. He's some, some dude. Anyway, <laughs> I just saw this this morning, I was like, oh, I've never seen that before. Uh, rumours are circulating, rumours, just new rumours. Never heard before rumours are circulating that circulating that the Israeli government orchestrated 9-11 as a false flag attack to get the United States military involved in their conflicts in the Middle East. Do you believe that is possible? Nah, dude. Is that a yes or no question? Yeah. It's like, nah, no way, dude. I've never heard that before. That's the most outlandish theory. I mean, where do you come up with that? I mean, no one's ever said that before. Okay, so, you know, um, I'm glad you've come out from under your rock, this guy, Matt Wallace, and uh, joined the reality-based community, or just joined reality, wherever he was the past 20 years, but (laughs) rumours are circulating. Yeah, shock. I don't know whether it's a lamp shock a, news alert lampoon him or <laughs> praise his, you know. Well, I'd pat him on the head and say yes. He, that's right. Well, maybe he's being cute here. <laughs> maybe yeah. You know, I don't know. He knows that people live in parallel worlds, and he's just. I'm just putting the question out there, kind of thing. Scroll uh, down a little bit there, Scotty. To the comments. Do you see any book covers? Scroll down a bit, a bit. He may not mm-hmm. see. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, is that all there is? Looking for a book cover. There. Oh. Anyway, we'll just leave that there. Yes. <laughs> oh, look, there's a name there. Looks familiar. Yeah, people have to understand. That, that can't it's, be our it's, joke. It's kind, of, it's kind of tiresome, you know. For us, we understand that some people are just waking when up was, right now. But uh, when it's was tiresome. that published? 2006. Six. Um, Almost 20 years ago. Well, 17. Some other news in the sense of developments. Um, There's one from The Intercept. Uh, U.S. quietly expands secret, secret, whatever, military base in Israel. Um, This was... uh, There are actually two bases in Israel that are American-only. 
This was published a couple of weeks ago, but it's actually two months before Hamas attacked Israel. The Pentagon awarded a multi-million dollar contract to build U.S. troop facilities for a secret base it maintains deep within Israel's Negev Desert, just 20 miles from Gaza. Codename Site 512, the long-standing, long-standing, I think it's from 2012, U.S. base is a radar facility that monitors the skies for missile attacks on Israel. On October 7th, however, when thousands of Hamas rockets were launched, Site 512 saw nothing because it was focused on Iran, more than 700 miles away. Right, whatever. Um, that's an interesting site. Uh, built, like I said, built in 2012, and it shows you that how long they've been prepping for this. Let's call it whatever kind, whatever form it comes. Great Middle Eastern war. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is kind of like a. Spe- this doesn't really house U.S. troops. We had a look at it. Uh, it is deep in the Negev Desert. Um, you can see. So you can see an outline of it anyway. Uh, when you go on Google Maps. Um, but it's not actually housing lots of U.S. troops. There is another facility, though. Um, this this other next report comes from thedrive.com. dot com. Um, this is published twenty nineteen. U.S. Army opens permanent base in southern Israel uh, as Trump slams Iran deal again. It's to do with Iran. Um, and this place is operational and houses an unknown number of U.S. troops. It, I, the, the report itself doesn't specify where exactly it is. So it's kind of, this is a bit more secretive. Further, the uh, missile further. radar site we can find, but mm. this one I can't. I think it's in embedded north. within an Israeli base. So it's still not quite a U.S. base. Anyway, I'm only mentioning this because actually up until now, all these 75, 80 years, there's not been a U.S. military base in Israel proper. That you know of. That we know of. (laughs) But since 2012, the radar slash missile installation site Mm -hmm. and then an actual base housing U.S. troops since five years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, This one, I'm I'm not sure exactly where it is, but I think it's similar. It's only about 20-some miles East of Gaza as well. It's right there. It's very close. Uh, yeah, east. Mm-hmm. So that's um, that's all I got on news per se. Um, we we heard Nikki Nikki Haley, the RNC candidate, um, say more than once over this last month that Israel's war is America's war. Mm. Now, Ron DeSantis has gone one further, okay? Have a listen to this. This, is a, this, goes, this is, goes some way to maybe trying to answer what the hell is going on with Western elites in general all being in complete lockstep with whatever Israel wants. And it gets to me that we have forgotten why we stand with Israel. So my question for, this, for us at the table is that, why do we stand with the nation of Israel? Not what, not how, but why do we stand with them? I think there's a number of reasons. One, uh, they're our only tried and true ally in the entire Middle East. They're the only democracy in the Middle East. They're the only country in that region that, that shares our values. Uh, we have a great economic relationship. We have great cultural ties. Uh, and that's been true for the 75-plus uh, years that they've been in existence. But... Israel is a special country because 
Our entire civilization, Western civilization, was birthed in the Holy Land. We are based on the Judeo-Christian tradition. You would not have the United States of America uh, if you did not have the thousands of years of history uh, that is represented in the Bible. And if you go to Israel and you take out your Bible, you can walk exactly what is recorded there. It is real history. And that is just something mm-hmm. that's unique. There's no other country uh, that would have that type of resonance uh, with us uh, given uh, the, the history where you have the, obviously the Old Testament and then the birth of Christianity. So, and I, if, for those of you who've gotten to go, Good I know Bob, there, you've go gone, on, uh, it will change. That is obviously complete horseshit. But, and he may or may not believe that, the Bible, of course, is not real. Historical. It's history. not a historical argument. That completely overlooks the Greeks, the Romans, whatever. Um, but that kind of thing is said often enough in the United States especially that they come to believe it or they come to behave based on that sloganeering. It, this religio-mythic rationale, it's horseshit. I mean, just, just take for one counterexample. Shlomo Sand is like arguably the top historian in Israel proper. Mm-hmm. I'm reading his book at the moment, The Invention of the Jewish People. Mm. Um, this is how many of the of the the myths of that Israel modern Israel relies on are, are not true. There was no exile mm-hmm. of the inhabitants of Judea slash Roman Palestine after either the Roman Jewish War of seventy A.D. or the subsequent Bar Kokhba Revolt of one thirty five A.D. There's no evidence, archaeological, physical evidence for an expulsion, and. <clears throat> Sand notes that when modern Zionist Israeli historians try to make real, make the two fit, actual history versus biblical history, Mm. they can't. Mm -hmm. They never do. Their last best bet, which they kind of settled on now that the modern current consensus in Israel is to say that the expulsion of the Jews that made them the wandering Jew all over the world mm. was a result of the Arab conquests. Mm-hmm. There's also no evidence for that. Mm-hmm. San says the best available evidence shows that when the Muslims came, the people who were there, the Jews slash Judeans slash Israelites, converted mm-hmm. to Islam. This, mm-hmm. this is the, and if he's right, <clears throat> this would be the darkest, darkest irony at the heart of all this. The Zionist waves of settlers who've come in and are now slaughtering the people in Gaza are actually slaughtering, for the most part, their own ethnic descendants. If indeed they have, each of them, it depends on who, where they've come from in the world, whether or not they have a genuine ethnic historical link to the place. They're slaughtering people who converted to Islam a a millennia and a half ago. Mm but who are actually native Judeans. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the best explanation that makes the two stories, the two things, mm-hmm. actual history and biblical history fit. But we, we've run with this. But we've talked about this before. We've talked about this in the show, but what, like, I've, I've, I've thought about it and talked to people about it and stuff, but what, is, what makes a Jew? You know, what, is it, what is a Jew? What, what, what makes you Jewish? You know? I mean, like, a notable Jew, Jewish person, is a guy on social media, a Canadian guy called Gad Saad. He's uh, he works 
he's an economist or marketing professor at University of Toronto, maybe. Anyway, um, and on his, his Wikipedia page, he's, 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 he's on this topic, he's been all... He's, he's fairly reasonable. He's not a... He's not a hysterical Israel firster, but he is obviously pro-Israel and anti-Hamas, and he just you know he buys the whole deal, the whole deal basically. But um, on his Wikipedia page, he he describes himself as a, he's an atheist, um, long-term atheist. So he's only culturally, I think he says cultural Jew, culturally culturally Jewish. Um. And I wondered, I actually said it to him, but didn't get a response. <laughs> uh, he's from Lebanon, originally. He mm. left, him and his family left Lebanon, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago or more. Um, but he still identifies as, as a Jew, and, mm-hmm. but he's not religious Jew. He's atheist, so he has no mm. re- relationship whatsoever with the religious aspect of Judaism, but he still seems, sees himself as Jewish. Um, I then wondered, like, would someone like him not see himself more ethnically? Would, would his identification not be more ethnic with Lebanon and the Middle East and, and his ethnic... If you're going to identify with something, and lots of people want to identify with... You know, they kind of need, in a certain sense, human, as part of the human condition, is to identify themselves as part of something. Some, you know, you're Irish, whatever, uh, you know, Scotty's... Where are you from, Scotty? Scotty's American. Um, uh, you know everybody, and then there's all these different identity politics that we've seen over the past past few years, where people want to associate themselves with some group, some in group, whatever you know, to, to give themselves a a sense of identity, which is yeah. important for people, right? So, uh, but why? I wondered why, in the case of Gadsad, why if he has no relationship with the religion at all, why how culturally Jewish would be. More, more important to him because most what what other <laughs> the first question is what culture is there that is Jewish that does not involve any religious aspects uh, the attachment to the well I mean well it, as, as it, trouble, it, it, as, no it's complicated because as prob- there are, you have to use Israel is different because you have to use two scales and one is ethnicity and the other is religion and they, they've jumped between the two in, in their narrative. Yeah, but like, if, you, if you're someone who has no interest whatsoever in the religion, you're atheist, you yeah. think all religions are nonsense. You're just left with being Jewish. But he's from Lebanon. He was born and grew up in Lebanon. He looks like a Middle Easterner. Mm-hmm. So why he would not identify with Middle Eastern people, at least as much as him being Jewish, you know, and mm-hmm. culturally Jewish. Like, what's there to hold on to, you know? Mm. I mean, people... It's, and the reason it occurred to me is because it's obvious that people uh, all around the world, especially people who have moved from, you know, who's, who come from somewhere else, their origins, their, their, their ethnic or their um, geographic origins are very important to them as, as, a, as an identifier. You know, you have so many Americans coming back to Europe every, every year and have done for so long looking for their roots, you know, and Americans will describe themselves as, you know, 20% Irish or 50% Irish and 50% Scottish or English or French or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, so it's, it's, it's an important part, in, uh, you know, in, in human psychology, it's an important aspect, you know, is your ethnic identity, you know? So why would someone uh, put ethnic, their ethnic identity, or, or sorry, their, their 
again, I can understand why some people might put their religious identity on the same level as an ethnic identity if the two go together whatever. But if you remove religion in the case that God's had and many others like him, because there's a lot of atheistic Jews out there, the only thing they're left with is Jewish cultural, I'm a culturally a Jew. And obviously there's an attachment to land there as well, so he would maybe identify with, but he, he never lived in Israel. He was born in Lebanon. And there's a lot, of, you know what I mean? It's like, I was just trying to get my head around it. You know no, what? You, you can, it, it can be, I think, a lifetime to get your head around it. I don't think it makes it, any sense, it's, I think. It's super complex. Um, but I don't think it's complex. I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it doesn't make any sense. It's yeah, complex in the sense I, I that it doesn't make any sense, that they have no proper, there's not a rational explanation for it. It's just all emotional. And they don't know why, and they can't give you a proper answer. Yeah, it's a belonging, you know. Yes, and belonging to what? Is it what to, do you belong to? I yeah. know. Is it to an ethnos or is it to a religion? Well, now you're an atheist, but historically, your particular groups, your your particular antecedents in Lebanon, say what we call Lebanon today, for them was religion. Right. Um, classic case in point, in fact, is to take Netanyahu himself. Hmm. His father is an atheist. Hmm. He's one of the founders of Israel. Uh, Ben Zion Netanyahu, he changed his name. His real name is Militowski or something. Mm. They're Jews from Poland. Right. Their father's father, grandfather, and, and, and when, I, when I say his father was an atheist, he was Zionism all the way, baby. A Zionism to the right. There's right. Zionism right and Zionism left, whatever. Mm. Okay. Um, their grandfather was a rabbi. Mm. And he, uh, as of a Zionist inclination, so he was trying to um, biblicize a justification for being in that particular part of the world, the home mm-hmm. of Zion, Judea. Um, you, you get these breaks from one generation to the next, and you're like, what the hell's the continuum? That's a completely different narrative basis for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've switched from it's for the land to mm-hmm. it's for religion and back again. I'm like, what the hell? How, how do you make sense of it? Um, Yes, yeah, so it's that Jews need a homeland, right? No, not even. Um, San's best guess is that at the Roman times, what was happening was you had an actual ethnos of people in what we call Israel today, Jews. And for a while, so for a couple hundred years, Judaism was very different. It was a proselytizing religion. That's totally what we don't know it as today. We know it as exclusivist. Mm-hmm. And it's all about, can you prove the genetics on mm-hmm. your mother's side? Mm-hmm. You can't just join a religion like that. Mm-hmm. You have to show that there's genetic history in your family to, to, to be one of us, right? For a couple of hundred years, that wasn't the case. They were proselytizing to the extent that there were like uh, some estimates, six, eight million Jews all around the Mediterranean Empire, which is a lot not in absolute numbers, but relative to the total size of the population of Rome, the Roman Empire, it was a lot. It spread like crazy. So you have your actual ethnos of Roman Jews in Judea, and you have religious communities springing up all over the place, including in Rome itself, mm-hmm. um, because they were encouraged to bring in Gentiles briefly mm-hmm. for a hundred years, for a couple hundred years. They were in competition against what would become Christianity as well, which mm-hmm. was proselytizing and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then but that, the door on that was shut at some point and it became exclusivist again for the most part. Um, so San's best guess is you've got actual Jew, Jews that are, who are religious and ethnically so in Judea, Roman Judea, um, and communities elsewhere that buy into the religion mm. um, 
and they remain religiously Jews, but na- later they become uh, the, their genetic descendant. That's the ability to prove descendancy as a Jew becomes critical. And over the span of a millennium and a half, those Jewish religious communities elsewhere around the Mediterranean become convinced themselves that they are actually from mm. because they're being told that this is their history, but it's, it's, a, biblical, it's a biblical narration of history. Um, can you be genetically Catholic? Essentially, you can because it's so prevalent in where you're from, and it's it's what your family's always known and your your ancestors. Well, genetically Catholic. <laughs> Can you be genetically a supporter of like um, Barcelona football team? No. No. You sure. It can be traditionally handed down from parent to son. Uh, father but you can son. be genetically Jewish, right? But Judaism, Judaism is religion. Right. It's not an ethnicity. It's not a. Yeah, it's not an ethnicity. It's not genetic. I mean, all those people who claim to be Jews are just do their twenty-three and Me, and they'll see where they're from. They're not from. They're not from Judaism. They're not from Jewish Jewishness. Ju- this is Jewish, this is Jewish, way Jewish, way not, too complicated for. No, but, but, a, but, a I, but, I, but I think for, very quickly you can you can see how it's just a load of nonsense. Uh huh. That is that that there's no basis to it. Whatever. It's, uh, basically, what this comes down to is a is a is a fight over, um, over land. Land and the pri- all sorts of narratives and, and the pri- around it. The, the privilege of believing that you're you're special, that you're exceptional, that you're chosen, and look how look how prevalent that is in people who grasp for power through history. Look at it today. Who's reiterated again by Biden this week? Who is the exceptionalist nation? Hmm. And before that, the British had British Israelism. They very much believed the same thing. Hmm. That it, it becomes so. It became so captured by it, the British Empire on its rise to becoming the British Empire, the peak of the nineteenth century, that um, there was a huge kind of religious slash nationalistic revival around the idea that, in fact, not only are we close to the Jews, and that's debatable about who they're talking about there, people in Alexandria or in what was then Palestine or somewhere else, but they they express desire to, to belief that they supplanted them, that they are the true lost tribe of Israel, the English. Hmm. Um, uh, and they're not the only ones who've done that. There's, there are people, there's a, there's a Aren't there Hebrews in, in Ethiopia who believe they're the lost tribe? Mm. And then they, 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 they want to believe that then the lost tribe is somehow, it's grasping onto a biblical narrative. Indeed, it's a Jewish one. It's theirs. It comes from their books. Um, and they're not only, they're not only expressing uh, support and collinearity with the Jews, but in fact, we're, we're the real chosen people. We're better yeah. than you even. So it's, you know what I mean? So this, it's, this grasping for... It's a, it's... It's a land and power and control conflict. It's a conflict over land and therefore power and control hmm. uh, that's clouded or occluded by clown shoes narratives. Uh, yeah, although for some reason it seems to have serious effect. Like oh, if you look at the track record of who've, who've been the most powerful. 
Yeah, the most the, the the centers of power on this planet, and before the British, the Dutch, just, the just Dutch, because, Am- yeah. Amsterdam, just and, because they're objectively clownish narratives doesn't mean that they're not effective. You know, what I mean, some clownish narratives for some reason really take take hold within people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, uh, but it doesn't under, doesn't change the fact that that, that they're clownish narratives. You know, what I mean, it's it's just nonsense. It's just you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Here, I hope maybe this will illustrate. You remember, we were you were sending me links of um, this guy on Twitter who. Kyle Undercover. Uh, let's, mm. put, let's put it up. Um, I don't know why I've never seen one before. I doubt this is the first time someone has done this. So a guy um, apparently joined the Freemasons somewhere in the US and he secretly recorded the, cer- the ceremony of another initiate being brought into the secret society. This is today, like this is, you know, modern times. So have a look at, this is just one clip he showed. He, he's apparently, every day he's releasing a new clip. So check him out. You can probably see the whole ceremony by the end of this week. This is the first one he published. Actually, I want you to read the text first because he, he, he describes it accurately. Um, I went undercover with a hidden camera to expose a Freemason, quote, Master Mason degree ritual. I was shocked to learn how much of it comes from ancient Talmudic teachings. Okay, go ahead and play that. Grandmaster Ayurveda, I'm glad to meet you. Give me the secrets of a master mason, or I will take your life. This is no time to place a man no secrets. Talk to me about time, place, patience, or the completion of the temple. Give me the secrets of a master mason or I will take your life. It will behoove you in this rude and violent manner thus to demand those secrets. When the temple is completed yet found worthy, you'll then receive them lawfully as I have. You have passed Jubilee, Jubilee. Me, you cannot pass. My name is Jubilee, well known for my determination of character. What I undertake, that I do. Give me the secrets of a master mason instantly, for I will take your life. I will not. What? Still persist? Then die. Bunk. He hit him with uh, the holy ham of Antioch. <laughs> it's very dried out because it's very old. This is no time for reflection. What shall we do with the body? Temple, as in Solomon's Solomon's temple. He's released like five clips now together, I think. Maybe there's another one today. Okay. Now, see, you're asking me to make sense of <laughs> Judaism. It's like asking me to make sense of that. It's obviously clown sheets. But what we know oh. is that that has happened tens of thousands of times all over the West in the last 300 years. Millions. 
possibly millions of times. This this stuff, this amalgamation of elements of uh, Judaism, Christianity, and this kind of atheistic overlay mm. mm-hmm. with you know quasi ritual, quasi you know, it's a bit of everything. It's a mishmash, and yet it's it's ritualistic. It's probably they probably haven't changed much in mm-hmm. the hundreds of years. <clears throat> I know new lodges are formed; they have variety, and there's some evolution and so on. But they're more or less unchanged for hundreds of years. Mm. And that uh, that mostly takes part in Protestant societies. It it does take it did take part. In, it began in France actually. They began a new lodge in Napoleonic times. But it is mostly because officially the Vatican stands on it since seventeen uh, something something is that's depraved that's and satanic. Devil. It's the work of the devil. Don't be involved. Mm-hmm. In it. Um, that's the official. Well, it's just like a, a really bad school play. It's terrible. It's hard. It's ridiculous. It's, it's, like it's farcical. But it's clown shoes. And yet. It binds together people in societies, especially in the upper crust of societies, in the similar way that Zionist, pro-Zionist talking points lock in our entire Western leadership. Uh, It's bonkers, it's clown shoes, and yet here we are. Like, like, uh, what do you call him? Rick uh, DeSantis. Yeah. Saying that uh, we wouldn't exist without without Israel. Um, Yeah, well then, you know, yeah, I mean, as we've said before, and we've said many times before, not, not just on this topic, but like, and many other topics over the past number of years, that uh, it's all clown shoes. And we have to suffer clown, shoe, clown shoeiness. Uh, but at the same time, people are, people are suffering and dying on the basis of it, on the basis of human stupidity and ignorance and hubris and lots of other things. That's what takes place behind closed doors. And then in, in the more serious venues, think tanks, um, State Department memos, um, like this beauty, you mentioned it on a few shows back. This is just a Wikipedia summary of it. 1996, paper written for Netanyahu, believe it or not, 30 years ago, he was also Prime Minister of Israel. Um, a clean break, a new strategy for securing the realm. First paragraph, commonly known as the Clean Break Report, as in clean break from the Oslo Peace Accords. Mm-hmm is a policy document prepared in 96 by a study group led by Richard Pearl, who went on to co-found PNAC, Project for the New American Century, for Netanyahu, then Prime Minister of Israel. The report explained a new approach to solving Israel's security problems in the Middle East with an emphasis on Western values. It has since been criticizing blah, 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 blah. Um, Its policy recommendations included the removal of Saddam Hussein from power, check, eight, nine years later, and the containment of Syria, check, about 19, 20 years later, by engaging in proxy warfare and highlighting the possession of mass weapons of mass destruction. So the, that's the, in Wikipedia. That's so the serious basi- stuff so they're basically, we hear about. They're basically, uh, on that Wikipedia page, and it's in that document, uh, they advocated for uh, containing Syria by engaging in proxy warfare. And it was a proxy warfare. Uh, mean, in the context of what actually happened in Syria, it means that the West uh, was backing jihadis, because they're the ones who are waging the war against Assad, and that's, you know, the containment of Syria was the containment of, of Syria under Assad by proxy warfare, i.e. by jihadis, by ISIS. Yeah. So ISIS and al-Qaeda. So basically, as we know already, I mean, it's well known that the West was funding and training jihadis, ISIS, al-Qaeda groups in, in Syria and in Iraq for quite a long time. And they did that from the foothold they gained in Iraq by invading Iraq and occupying it for 10 or 12 years. Um, so, you know, again, it's like, 
all of this is out there. You know, we have a broad meta narrative well, as to, ex- to explain everything that's happening. Well, that that makes make complete sense. It's all called conspiracy theory, but it makes complete sense. Yes, but you've got to be careful where you land on the conspiracy theory. I don't want anyone watching this to think, right, so you're saying it's a conspiracy of Jews. Let, let's go back to that report. There's more to come, okay? Because you have to... It cuts both ways. It's not them doing it to, quote, us, the West, okay? Do a word search for um, yes. Douglas Feith. I know, but th- this is how, like, if YouTube's reading, watching this, and or, you know, you, you don't want to leave it as simply that, because everyone goes, oh, it's the Jews then. Um, sorry, Feith will be mentioned throughout. Um, maybe just scroll way down. Or t- oh, there, second mention. Okay. So, in the New York Times op-ed in 2003 about this document. We quote uh, Ian Baruma, don't know who he is, but anyway, Douglas Feith and Pearl advised Netanyahu, who was Prime Minister, blah, 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 to make a clean break. They also argued that Israeli security would be best served by regime change in surrounding countries. Mm. Jack, we've seen that. Um, despite the current mess, this was obviously in the middle of Iraq, Fubar, um, this is still a commonplace belief in Washington. Okay, in Wolf, Paul Wolfowitz's own words, the road to peace in the Middle East goes to Baghdad. It has indeed become an article of faith, literally in some cases. And remember, these people are all atheists, faith, right. right? In Washington, that American and Israeli interests are identical. But this was not always so. But this has become more and more the case. This wasn't always so. And Jewish interests are not the main reason for it now. They're not doing it because we have to suck up to Israel. No. It cuts both ways. Um, the guy continues, What we see then is not a Jewish conspiracy, but a peculiar alliance of evangelical Christians, foreign policy hardliners, lobbyists for the Israeli governments and neoconservatives, a number of whom happen to be Jewish. But, um, but the Jews among them, per the Jews among crystal. Them, all of them, ex-Trotskyites, definitely not, are more likely to speak about freedom and democracy than about halakha, Jewish law. What unites this alliance of convenience is a shared vision of American destiny and the conviction that American force and a tough Israeli line on the Arabs are the best ways to make the United States strong, Israel safe, and the world a better place. Well, a world a better place for American hegemony. Inadvertently or make not, America strong. Inadvertently or not, last week, RFK Jr. articulated the actual geopolitical, real politic rationale for the West's deadly embrace, and I think... With uh, with Israel and all Israel's interests, I think it's. I we've said this before. You certainly said this before. I, I couldn't have heard it better from a public figure as to why the United States mm-hmm. is so enraptured Hell-bent. with Israel. And you understand. I forgive people when they go, oh "My God, it looks like the tail is wagging the dog." Holy shit! We don't want to send our boys there to die for Israel's wars and all that kind of thing. That's tempting. To leave it at that. Oh, it's an again. It's an external source that comes in and makes our country bad. It's Chinese communism. It's Russian influence, you know. And or maybe now, at the end of all things, it's revealed. The curtains pull back. It's the Jews doing it to us. No, it's not that simple. Listen to RFK. Israel is critical, and the reason it's critical is because it's a bulwark for us in the Mideast. It's almost like having an aircraft carrier in the Mideast. It's our oldest ally. It's been our ally for 75 years. Um, It has been an incredible ally for us in terms of the technology, the exchange. And, you know, in building the Iron Dome, which we've paid a lot for, has also taught us enormously about how to defend ourselves 
add on for missiles. So those military expenditures um, are are you know are are all going. Seventy five percent of it goes to U.S. companies under the agreement under the MOU. But if you look at what's happening in the Middle East now, Iran is now um, a the closest allies to Iran are Russia and China. Iran also controls all of Venezuela's oil. Hezbollah is in Venezuela. They have propped up the Maduro regime, and so they control that oil supply. Um, BRICS, Saudi Arabia is now uh, joining BRICS. So those countries will control 90% of the oil in, our, in the world. If Israel disappears, the vacuum in the Mideast, which is, you know, Israel is our ambassador, it's our presence, our beachhead in the Mideast, and it gives us, um, it gives us ears and eyes in the Mideast, it gives us intelligence, it gives us the capacity to, um, uh, to, to, to influence affairs in the Mideast. If Israel disappeared, Russia and China would be controlling the Mideast, and they control 90% of the world's oil supply, and that would be cataclysmic for U.S. national security. So that's the that is the compassionate version of America's rationale for, quote, having influence in the Middle East. Now you put neocons saying the same things and the things they do, and you've got the other, that's the other side of neocon, neoconservative. That's the neo, he just articulated the neoliberal version of it. It's the same thing. And yeah, he, he he threw in all the metaphors you could. We've heard it before that Israel is from a, an American admiral in the 1950s. That Israel is the United States' unsinkable aircraft carrier. Well, he threw in bulwark, beachhead. Beachhead is a military term for getting an incursion into a place and holding it mm-hmm. so that you can spread out <clears throat> in both directions. Ninety percent of the world's energy is in this place. We need to be there. The results otherwise are catastrophic. Domestically for the United States. Yeah. So America's fight, it's existential for America. Do or die. Hmm. When Netanyahu says it's do or die for Israel, Washington's not going, oh, gosh, it's a bit harsh there, Benny. They're going, yes, it is do or die. It's do or die for both of us. Mm-hmm. All of Washington, not just the staff, like the alternatives too, you know. Does Trump think this too? Probably does, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, never, he never quite could say it like that, but... Um, yeah. Uh, again, people need to understand we uh, um, we've known this um, for a very long time. We've been writing about it for a very long time, um, and nothing's changed. Everything that's happened um, in the years since then. So we're talking, you know, at least fifteen up to twenty years. Um, has just proven that our take on it, our understanding of the broad dynamics at play and why everything that was happening in the world is happening, while everybody else gets lost in the nitty-gritty and the, the, the narratives around all of the different uh, conflicts and, and, and gets lost, you know, they swallow the propaganda and the lies and stuff. But we, you know, and others, I don't know, just us, but, you know, saw it for what it was, uh, that it's, a, it's geopolitical, it's global geopolitics and it's primarily everything that will pass almost 100 years or, yeah, 100 years or more that has happened in the world has been pretty much everything, all major events, major conflicts, um, have can all be tracked back to America's 
attempts to maintain its position, to consolidate and maintain and secure its position as uh, the ruler of the world, basically, and attempting to stop other countries from pushing back against that. Um, and there you can just bring it down to a very kind of a moral thing, you know what I mean? It doesn't even have to be good or bad necessarily. It's like, um, you know, America, so America rules the world. Lucky America, good for America, right? America's lived high on the hog because it, it secured that position. But the question then is, how has it ruled the world? How has it gone about being the, the, the ruler of the world? How has it treated the vassals? Um, and could it have done it better? You know, arguably, yes, it could have done it a lot better. And it created a lot of conflict um, or provoked a lot of conflict because of the way it was ruling the world, you know, with a heavy hand um, against other countries that, you know, didn't want to pay all of you know, their tithes to America. Or, or, or yeah, you ba- everyone basically pays a tax yeah. because of the dollar mm-hmm. as reserve currency, mm-hmm. and a lot of countries suffered as a result, and, and their, their 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 countries were lived in relative poverty as a result, and you had people then who uh, different countries who tried to push back against that, and they got they got punished by the, the hegemon for it. Right, that's the way of the world, you know. But and you can say you don't have to be moralistic about it, but you can say that well, listen, those countries have every right to try and you know get, get a bigger piece of the pie. You know what I mean? Especially countries that by their size, their population, or their, their, their natural resources, deserved a bigger part, part of the pie, deserved to share in the stewardship or the, or the ruling of the world. But America always wanted to be the only, the only ruler. Um, and that's where, obviously, that, that's what went wrong. Or, you know, but then it's the sickness, in a certain sense. It's greed and sickness. And, you, know, and, and and the, you start to believe you're the only one capable. Right. You have all these narratives. Like, you, it would all go to hell. You'd be no good without me. You know, America, the world needs America. Without it, it'll just be a jungle right. and chaos. Yeah. So, you know, you ask the question, what is it that makes a Jew Jewish? Complicated. But in the end, you're like, guys, it's shifting sounds. I can't hang my hat on anything. It depends on whether you're an atheist or whether you're actually originally from the region or whatever. But the reason I ask the question is because I know the answer. You know, at least I know the answer. The answer that makes sense to me, which is that um, uh, it's um, the way it's expressed today, and the way Jews see themselves and the identity that Jews have today, especially um, you know the ones that are kind of political Jews, if you know what I mean, or political Zionists. Well, there's no basis for it. It's, it's basically. It's clothed in all these narratives and all these compli- apparently complicated narratives, but what it actually is is just uh, a drive for power and uh, and control. Yeah. And what we saw there with the clean break document from 96, one of the emphasis in the document is how are we going to make our Israeli security interests synonymous with, quote, Western values? Well, that's another um, – it's a modern. It doesn't have the same roots as, you know, Judaism, but it's another thing – what ultimately are Western values, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I thought this speech from Assad, president of Syria, last year, was a great summary of Western values. A speech he gave to Parliament in Damascus, March 2022. Um, it's got subs.
Bummer. Okay. Jump it forward a bit. No. Can't do it. I couldn't find it anywhere else. I, I remember the first time I saw it was on YouTube. It's probably the Knicks from there. I know. We'll put it in there. We'll put it in the description and see if uh, people can watch it after. Yeah. Memory TV. Obviously, this is a guy who has um, come face-to-face with Western values. Mm-hmm. <laughs> His description is like, it's acerbic, but right to the point. I mean, basically, their interests, it's whatever their interests are. And he was just called, giving several examples. Obviously, in March 2022, the recent example was Ukraine and Azov. And how on earth would a Jewish Zelensky president of Ukraine be obviously associating with actual Nazi, tattooed Nazis, you know, for freedom and democracy and all these convoluted narratives. He said, when you strip them away, what you're left with is whatever advances their material interest. That's it. That's Western values. That's material interest. You strip all the... I love the way he did it because he peeled off the layers of the ideology, which could be religious. Mm -hmm. It could be um, modern atheistic type Mm -hmm. ideological stuff. Whether if for Israelis, that would be Zionism. For Westerners, that would be freedom and democracy, Mm -hmm. right? And you strip... And he did a strip of it and you're left with, it's whatever we want Mm -hmm. and we're going to do whatever it takes to get it. Speaking of Assad... France issued an international arrest warrant for him last week. Um, this is a, actually a novel development. This has happened before to past leaders of countries. This is the first time they put a red notice through Interpol for a current acting leader of another country. Hmm. So it hasn't got a leg to stand on in international case law. But still, it's a, not a good omen because what they're trying to get him on in the warrant is – the use of a chemical weapon in mm. Eastern Ghouta. That, that old thing. Ghouta, 2013, Eastern Damascus. I would refer you back to the proxy war that America waged via, exactly. via jihadis to uh, unseat Assad from 2011 to 2016 or thereabouts um, and the methods they used to try and unseat him, which one of which was to use chemical weapons and blame Assad. France has issued an arrest warrant for Assad over the alleged use of banned chemical weapons against villains in Syria. Two investigative judges on Tuesday issued four warrants against his brother, himself, two other officials for complicity, and blah, 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 blah. I'm a bit worried about this. This, this, this isn't a good omen because Ghouta 2013 was the first one. Mm-hmm. This was to be the red line. Mm-hmm. I think it was July 2013. It was the red line Obama had set in a couple of, a speech a couple of weeks before. That was it looked like to everyone's appearances, uh, all appearances, that it was the justification neocon America and or Israel needed to launch an Iraq-style regime change against Syria. Mm-hmm. It was called off at the last minute. I still to this day, we don't know why. But they were weapons hot, ready to go. And then they allowed a vote in Congress mm-hmm. and uh, Parliament in the UK. Mm-hmm. And Strangely. Just, they all just voted against. But obviously because the senators and the MPs were told mm-hmm. to, to make it so because the decision had been taken behind closed doors not to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so here we are 10 years later 
and they're bringing up that again. It's unfinished. Smacks of unfinished business. There's a, a vengeance factor here. We're, yeah. we're going to get you one That's way or the other. Go. Yeah, yeah. Which is what you you you're worried about that he may be in the in the, in the crosshairs. But uh, you well, the Russian Russian said Putin said a couple of weeks ago he warned about uh, certain parties involved in the conflict in in, in Palestine. Israel Palestine. Um, he warned that they might take this opportunity to to settle old scores. Right. A bit cryptic, but yeah, certainly Assad would figure as a possibility there. You know. Um, speaking of <laughs> speaking of Ukraine, um, <laughs> this is kind of like it still I, exists. Well, it's not four or four yet, right? Ukraine. Well, you might have forgotten about Ukraine. Per Zelensky, you know, he's. Uh, He's not the man of the hour anymore, but um, they're still, you know, never say never say die. Basically, uh, this is I don't know who this guy is, but obviously it's some NGO, whatever, or some organization, probably affiliated with the government, whatever. But uh, sending um, sending just play it. They're sending um, trucks to a high 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 luxes or something with you know. I am machine here with the guy from Cars for Ukraine. Uh, I've seen them before. Cars uh, for so Ukraine. The Hiluxes and Mitsubishi L200 that are going out to the front. And these guys are special because they do all the armor plating on here too. And they also fit armored turrets to the, the top. Back. And they call these the Bandera mobiles. <laughs> Obviously, because of Stefan Bandera. Right. Obviously, because Stefan Bandera, nice, the, well, nice. the well known Nazi. <laughs> Let's put his picture on Absolutely the trucks that we're sending Ukraine. Job. And all, of course, from. Great Britain. Lovely. Lovely. British Reg. Because it's Daphne Van Der. Best of British. Best of Nazis. Tally ho. Let's let's support the Nazis in Ukraine. So if you'd like to sponsor a car. car That's Western values. Um, There's no principle whatsoever. Just pause it there. Because, you know. We'll fight them on the beach. The Nazis bought me granny. The Nazis bought me. Nazis bought me granny in the war. So now we're. Going to send some trucks to neo Nazis in Ukraine. Makes sense, right? It makes sense. It's not clown shoes. It's clown shoes. Yeah, I've seen that guy before. And of course, it makes you wonder was his company or similar involved in sending retrofitted Mitsubishis to ISIS in 2014? Maybe? No. Yeah. Because where did they get that idea from? For sure. Um, well, yeah. Do you want to say anything else in Ukraine? Ukraine is yeah. We just have to wait and see. It's not looking good, but it's slowly, quietly going going by. By uh, I think the Russians. We don't have to wait and see, but I think the Russians are might be gearing up. I don't know what capability they have or what their plans are. Obviously, I don't have a hotline to the Kremlin, although I'd like you, one. But um, I know I know we thought I did, but, but I don't troll. But uh, <laughs> I haven't been I haven't been getting my paycheck from the Kremlin uh, recently, so uh, I don't know. Um, what's going on there anymore? But I suspect that uh, if the opportunity presents itself, the Rus- I mean, the Russians. There has been talk, um, or scaremongering amongst the the Kiev crowd, the pro-Ukrainian crowd, that uh, the Russians are going to plan are planning a Maidan, Maidan three. They suppose they're calling it in Kiev because mm. you had first two Maidans. People think of 2014 was the only Maidan. There was another, according to Russians anyway. Those are at least. Allegedly, the Russians believe that there was another Maidan previously in, uh, in 2004. Oh, four. 2004, yeah. yeah. Um, 
another Western-backed Orange Revolution, yeah. they called it at the time, um, and then the actual Maidan 2014, that was the actual successful coup uh, that, that led to the Russia being provoked to in, in, invade Ukraine and defend itself and the Russian speakers in Ukraine. So now the time is ripe with, with uh, the, the moment is, is, is it's, it's a good moment for, or the time has come, let's say, for um, Russia to kind of finish the job if possible in Ukraine, now that the West is looking away towards the Middle East, and the uh, funds and the weapons are relatively drying up. Um, things, yeah, it depends. Are they able to, uh, is the West able and willing and able to to kind of prop up Zelensky and the, the, the government in Kiev? Of course they could get rid of Zelensky and shoot shoo someone else in or whatever, but it's it's difficult when a country like that basically you know loses a war and all the chickens come home to roost in a certain sense, and if their backers kind of tend to walk away or start walking away, then the whole thing can collapse very quickly into all sorts of in, you know internal conflicts and stuff mm-hmm. uh, and that's an opportunity for Russia to provoke some from the outside so it's whether or not the West is willing and able like I said to continue to do at least the bare minimum to prop up the Kiev regime, if not continue the war very much anymore but to basically try and freeze it along the lines and let, without, without admitting it, allow Russia to keep the four territories uh, that it has annexed and um, and then just, you know, see what happens, you know. But I think other, other factors will inter- intercede as well in terms of the, from a global perspective, you know. Well, on the future of Ukraine. It's not looking good. The future of Ukraine isn't look, looking good if, if, you know, there are other major events in terms of the global economy, etc., etc. Et I not think what it might come down to is can the Russia or the US focus on two theaters at once? Have a, have a look at this. This is last week. It's just flared up and there's been nothing on it since. I'll try to find an update. Nope. Mm. Al Jazeera, others have reported it. ISIL, ISIS, whatever, attacks, kill 30 in Syrian desert. They just popped up out of nowhere, killing 30 Syrian pro-government militia and soldiers stationed in the desert. Now, the Syrians themselves said, we know where they came from. They came from Al-Tanf, which houses a U.S. base in the southern Syria in the desert. Um, and the uh, advance by ISIS in the desert last week, involved, suppressing them, involved Russian jets taking off from the Takia. So you come full circle on both issues, Assad, Syria, and Ukraine. Remember in 2013, that was August mm. when that was called off. September, October, the protests start in Maidan. Mm-hmm. And by February next year, there's a coup. Mm-hmm. And now we, now we have a situation where, I, I don't know who, who will be tested most by that. I presume the Russians have less resources to try to do both. If they make, I suspect, Here's an idea. If they make a move in Ukraine in this fall and winter, that might be like a cue to finally, quote, deal with Assad by by the West. Who makes a move? Uh, Who makes a move? If, make, if the Russians make a move in Ukraine. Yeah, a reverse Maidan yeah. or um, yeah, yeah. a regime change. We take back, quote, what's our sphere of influence. The other side will be like, well, okay, we're getting Syria because mm-hmm. the two things I can't ever forget that the two they're so related chronologically mm-hmm. that red line and Ghouta and chemical attack mm-hmm. was followed by Maidan in a matter of weeks you know what I mean the two things have dovetailed mm-hmm. this last decade mm-hmm. 
And here we are, Ukraine's at an impasse and the whole, obviously, Middle East is on tenterhooks as to what will open up next, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, no, I won't make a prediction, but I'll just, just, I'm just emphasizing the point that the two issues are probably connected. Hmm. Um, presumably the U.S. thinks they can stretch Russia here. ISIS flares up last week, Russian jets handle it. Mm-hmm. But would they create a situation such that Russian jets hmm. probably ought to leave Syria because it's untenable or it's too risky for them to be too stretched mm-hmm. to try to deal with both countries at once? Mm-hmm. They might try to force... Russia out of one situation, which most likely will be Syria, because they have, Russia clearly has the dominant hand in Ukraine, right? Right. Yeah. Show. Yeah, yeah. Um, you see these protests in Spain? Yeah. Que es esto? Um, they've been brewing. Do you want me to say it again? I don't think <laughs> we haven't said it on the show. You said it to me. Put what? that up, Scotty. This no. Is, this has been brewing for a few weeks. It's already clenched. The biggest protest in Spain against Catalan amnesty law draws 170,000 um, on the 18th, which is yesterday. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 170,000 people marched through Madrid, the largest protest against an amnesty law, which Spain's socialists agreed over Catalonia's 2017 separatist bid in order to form a government. Um, okay. Um, 2017 Catalan separatists attempt to hold a independence referendum mm-hmm. and Spanish police are sent in to beat a lot of heads and apparently hundreds of people ended up arrested and or imprisoned mm-hmm. that's what the amnesty refers to letting them out because in the last election, general election in Spain the incumbent socialist party Technically, got fewer votes than the largest conservative party, um, I think. And to form a coalition government, they were going to need the support of the Catalonian independence. So the Catalonians said, fine, if you grant amnesty, which just happened, <laughs> sparking this, this biggest protest yet. Um, no one's ever said it, but I presume part of the tension involved here is a fear that because they're now in power in Madrid there's a risk of the Catalan separatists being able, being able to hold another independence referendum this time one recognized by the Spanish state I doubt it I don't think that's I don't think that's the I don't think that's the the point um it's again. It's just I look at there's so many things going on in countries. Like the main the thing that brought this to my attention was uh, a couple of conservative U.S. of all people conservative um, commentators. What that was that guy called Jack Prosobia, whatever isn't it? Yeah, him and uh, and then Turk Carlson actually going to Madrid talking to the Vox, uh, which is the conservative kind of offshoot of conservative party leader. And yeah, I can understand um, why that would get. Uh, Get Tucker over there because basically Vox is like an offshoot of the in the same way like the MAGA crowd, let's say, or an offshoot of the of the of the of the Republicans in America. Vox is an offshoot of the of the mainstream conservative party in the um, in Spain, and Vox is this hardline anti woke uh, nationalist 
anti-immigrants, anti-immigrants, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So, I mean, but the way they characterize it, that like in, in the elections this, this summer in Spain, uh, government elections, no party got enough votes to actually form a government. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of wrangling, which happens in, in several different uh, European uh, countries and, and their governments, a lot of them end up having to form coalition governments with other parties. Uh, it's very normal, very common, happens all the time. And the socialists in Spain, uh, in this case, made a deal with some of the more the, the smaller parties, uh, one of them being the Catalan pro-independence party, to in order to get enough seats. Which kind of ended up being the kingmaker because they're a sizable minority. Yeah, coherent but minority. they needed the others as well. They added several oh, others. It's more than just them. Yeah, and more the than just them. Several others. Okay. But probably the far left. Well, also the Basque and the Galicians as well. But um, uh-huh. so they needed all of them, and they formed a government that way. And that happens all the time. Which whoever, whichever, whichever of the two main parties, the the left or the right party, uh, is able to strike a deal with other minority parties. They're the ones. You know, in the case of a, a hung election where nobody gets enough seats, whichever one does does the best deals. And has enough gets enough uh, seats basically to form a government, then a majority in the in the in the parliament, then they form the government. And that's it. it. Happens all the time. But apparently everybody freaked out this time because mainly because they were in Spain at least, not necessarily with Tucker, because Tucker then tags on the whole oh um well in Spain anyway, the main problem was that they were forming a coalition with the Catalan independence uh, groups who had tried to have a referendum for independence several years ago, seven or eight years ago, and it was kind of put down by the state. Not allowed to, you're not allowed to have an independence vote. You're not allowed to be to secede from Spain. It's against the constitution, and they beat heads in polling stations, all that kind of stuff. Quite anti-democratic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, then, and that was Russia, by the way. Call it a Russian influence. Blamed operation. Russia, of course, on everything. And then that was the end of it. And if some of them were put in prison, one of them, the leader of it, was sent into exile, basically to Belgium. So the 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 the, the problem this time is that informing the government with, among others, this Catalan Independence Party, the deal was that they would give amnesty to these people who were put in prison and the guy who was put into exile. And no that's t- the extent of it. That's it. That's it. Except this Vox Party, which is a kind of, let's say, right-wing, more right-wing than the, than the conservative, traditional conservative party, yeah. uh, they've been on a campaign of uh, basically an anti-woke, uh, yeah. populist, and it- uh, um, kind of like, they've been on, on that new right... Yeah, they've been on the, on that um, on that thing, basically the anti woke narrative uh, for as long as it's been around for the past number of years, whatever. So, radicalizing the right, populist, all that kind of stuff, and they Spanish they, MAGA, yeah, Spanish MAGA, basically, and they um, so they're they're talking it up. The leader of that party's talking it up like this is like a socialist takeover and it's anti constitutional. But he, when you listen to him, he doesn't have anything other than his usual gripes about lefty wokey socialist. Parties uh-huh. complain about those. Obviously, a right-wing party would say that, particularly in the, in the current political climate in the West. But his main thing is this is a horrible, horrible situation where they're actually daring to give amnesty to these Catalan leaders. Well, I listened to some of his interview with Tucker. Um, the language is even further than that. He says that these, this socialist party is so corrupt, etc., etc. He's all hanging around about the corruption. Yeah, that's part of the course. But also that what they're doing here by granting amnesty, this is a coup d'etat. How? That it's illegitimate. This is the this would be an illegitimate government. How? That's what he got Tucker to tell the anger. I know, the but it's not, it's not true. It's obviously not true. I know it's her purpose. I mean, you can say all, you can say all that kind of stuff he wants, but again, these kind of right wing just to, play, to make it difficult for us and for anybody trying to make sense of it, or, or trying to see if you should agree or disagree or figure out what's 
you know where you what stance you should take on it in this situation in Spain. Um, uh, that guy, that leader of the of the Vox Party, uh, he that was Abascal. Yeah, Abascal. He he uh, is has been fervently pro-Ukraine uh, uh-huh. and anti-Russian, and he is currently fervently pro-Israel. Naturally, they all are new right. It's crazy. How so pick it out of that, you know. Um, and but the weird thing is, this is again clown shoes because like he's nationalist, right? So, so Spain whole mm. no one no his main problem is any 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 part of Spain, and there's like you know thirteen autonomous regions of one description or other in Spain so they have to you know Spain the country patria you know um, they have to manage that they have to they all have to stay together there's no possibility in any of those countries seceding right like they had the whole issue, issue with ETA in, in the past during uh, yeah. the 70s and 80s and 90s um, but there's several of those reasons that are more more nationalistic let's say and this is where you get into it so you have the nationalistic Vox party which is Spain unified and whole and nobody's allowed to break away and for con- traditional conservative Catholic Catholic anti-gay anti-woke anti-immigration values and that's nationalism supposedly right mm-hmm. all that together is the, their nationalist agenda but they're screaming bloody murder at the socialist government making a deal with minority parties including the Catalan Independence Party which would help and keep Spain cohesive at least in the short term. Yes, but also on the Galician Nationalist Party mm-hmm. in the northwest of Spain and the Basque Nationalist Party, which is basically the political party of ETA, of ETA, the terrorist group, quote-unquote terrorist group. So whose nationalism is on first there? I know. Is it Spanish nationalism? Like, could you... Uh, who would you say is the most nationalist? Like, go on... Or even most conservative. Go and talk to some Basque, long-term Basque nationalists who have... Fought, who, you had family members who fought physically for to try and have to, uh, gain independence for the Basque region and their language and their values, whatever they are, are Basque nationalistic values conservative. I'd say they're probably more conservative than than, 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 than lefty. The more north you go in Spain, the more Catholic. So exactly. So, um, but you have that a, a group like that, a party like that, and in Galicia and in and in Catalonia aligning with a socialist government, helping to, the socialist government to form, a, to form an actual government, so a socialist party to form a government, and they're being attacked for being radical lefty, woke, anti-Spanish nationalism by the Spanish Nationalist Party. But if, okay, you could say that about the Socialist Party in Spain, that they're radical lefty, woke, whatever, and they don't care about Spain breaking up, whatever. But when it comes to pure nationalism and populism, I don't think you'd, I don't think Vox Party or the people who subscribe to it, and there's quite a few because of the protests in Spain, I don't think they would win a nationalism contest with Basque nationalists or, or Galician nationalists or even Catalonian nationalists. So what, which nationalism are we talking about here? Uh-huh. They, Do you see how clenched it is? It is. But they would say we would win because we have the state power hmm. and you, the Spanish army behind us. And, and exactly. therefore NATO. Well, Madrid, central government, whatever. But uh, and and you, but don't, who, you probably don't have to think too hard to imagine who in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, who the Basque uh, party uh, that is aligned now in government with uh, with the socialists, who they support, right? And who the socialists, at least nominally, 
Well, the socialists are like any socialist government in Spain. The socialist party are like any socialist party in, in any European. Country. They have a, they're pro. They have a government minister. I think she's Podemos, but whatever. She's minister for social something, housing, or whatever. She, she's up there every day. Pro Palestinian. Pro Palestinian. Yeah. Ceasefire now. Yeah. Um, in fact, she's calling for the ambassador of Israel to be yeah. expelled. But they're not gonna. They're not gonna. Well, call, they're, they're not gonna go much further. Basically, no, in the same way as the Irish minister, some Irish. Politicians, etc., or even ministers would be pro-Palestinian, but you're not going to get the actual government, the actual prime minister, and the cabinet to actually come out and be take an anti-Israel stance. Like in Ireland, a, a traditionally very pro-Palestinian country, like the population very pro-Palestinian, and even and members of the government uh, be, having that inclination as well. Uh, you had the prime minister Mihol <laughs> Mihol Martin heading off to um, Israel, Israel, week. and and parlaying with the with the with the Israeli government, you know, so. None of them are going to cross that line. They can't. No, no. official government. But at is going least to cross that line. in Europe, you get the articulation of such things. Yes, for sure. In America, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's practically it's, illegal. Yeah. The land of free speech, it's illegal in X number of states to be critical of Israel. I mean, it's yeah. anti Semitism right off the bat. Yeah. For me, it's a tad suspicious how Tucker Carlson can afford to just drop everything and fly anywhere in the world, right as tr- especially in the West, right as trouble in that country brews over something to do with establishment left versus populist right. He did that in Argentina as well recently. I'm like, right as the wave of Javier Millet became popular in his campaigning, he goes down there and introduces him to Americans. Oh, yeah, he's one of us. I mean, he did that obviously with Vox last week. Um, Speaking of Malay, uh, that is the, the runoff in Argentina is right now. Uh, That's probably probably Malay is going to win. Um, it's I, he's up against a Peronista, which in Argentine, Argentina's context means he's the establishment candidate. Malay is the outsider, pro-Trump, pro-America, pro-Israel. Um, he's a nutcase. No prizes. I, I just said what he is. No prize for guessing where he stands on on the Middle East. You can. Uh, this is a video of him yesterday while on campaign. Um, this guy is so pro America. He wants Argentina to have the U.S. dollar as his official currency. But yeah, meet Israel, uh, <laughs> Israel, um, Argentina's likely new president. Um, Argentinian, Jewish, I believe. Javier Malay. Um, some people are anti woke. This guy is like, line him up against the wall and shoot him. Anti woke. <laughs> um, I'm joking, but maybe I shouldn't because this could seriously turn into a Pinochet situation. Um, yeah, what's horrifying about the right support for Israel is that you get the general sense from Argentina to Spain to anywhere that their entry into power is contingent on absolute support for Israel. Mm-hmm. On any other issue than that, they'll have free reign to go massive in their backlash against the left when they get in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, provided it's 100% support for Israel, like Viktor Orban in Hungary, mm-hmm. you know, 
sounds great. It does, does great things. Great for family, protects the country, borders. Every, the American Tucker flies out there, interviews him. Wow, what? This is awesome. The only country in Europe that votes against a fucking ceasefire three weeks ago at the UN. Right. Three countries on earth. USA, Israel, and Hungary. Voted um, against the ceasefire. Voted, Orban voted, he directed his ambassador to vote against ceasefire. Now, um, yeah, that backlash is coming, but when it's coming, it's going to be on certain terms, and it, it could be horrific. Hmm. We really could get the, we could revert to the classical situation where the right is uh, how the left has always betrayed it. And mm. has been accurately the case in the 20th century mm. as being the tyrannical cracking heads, concentration camps, mm. deportations, mass arrests, surveillance, you know, crackdown on the left. That could come, but it, it, it's so creepy how it's only, it's like it's been contained thus far. Oh, we had four years of Trump, but we saw how contained that was while he was in office. Mm-hmm. He was under constant pressure, right, from Russiagate. Mm-hmm. It's like it's being held back on a leash and it could be just let go more or less overnight everywhere. Obviously, it depends on when the election takes place in each, in each country. But the New York Times had an article last week <coughs> um, on Trump's plans for camps and mass deportations of migrants when he gets in, if he gets in, you know. Or in France, consider last week the anti-Semitism march. You noticed that. Uh, in Paris last week, it, you know, it was kind of a Charlie Hebdo, just to be Charlie. They've done this before. It wasn't the first anti-Semitism march or call to the public. Well, about 100,000 people turned up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's ostensibly it's anti-Semitism, but it's really like pro-Israel, whatever. They, they weren't waving Israeli flags, but you had at the front ex-presidents, the Archbishop of Paris, uh, Flamby was there, Sarko, the, um, President Macron didn't attend, but still, it's obviously under his aegis that it's, it's been called, you know, the rally for Israel, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and who else is there? Shoulder to shoulder. Up till now, she's been like kryptonite for them. Shoulder to shoulder with the establishment figures is Marine, Marine Le Pen. Pen. Yeah. Dude, they're all just in it for... For the for the lols, like you said, it's all just it's just for whatever they want. Everybody's in it for themselves, and 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 there's the ones ruling the ruling the roost, basically, and dictating the course of events. Are all just the the psychos and the mad narcissists, and they're obviously what they want is is whatever gets in their jollies, you know. And, and and depending on the position that they're in, they're they're if they're president of a country or if they have a lot of weapons and military prowess behind them, then they're going to use that uh, if necessary to get whatever they want. And if their backs up against the wall, they're gonna they're gonna kill people and slaughter people, and they don't care because they're because they're psychos, right? So there's nothing else behind it, you know. what I mean, there's nothing else. There's no all all the all the philosophy and the ideologies and the freedom and democracy and anti-terrorism and all that kind of stuff. But, it's all, but, it's all patent nonsense. But but the whole West was born in Israel. Thousands yeah, of yeah, years yeah, ago. sure it was. Whatever. If you want to believe that, go ahead. It's just mystique. bollocks. Huh? The mystique. It's 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 because it's clothing, they, as Jordan Peterson said, their lives are so meaningless. They have to make up this bullshit. It's clo- clothing your lowbrow bullshit wants and needs in some fanciful. Yeah, convoluted narrative, you know, and people do it all the time. It's just, it's just, it's pretty horrible to see it when it's uh, writ large across the globe by psychos, you know. Um, so, yeah, 
Is it time for a joke? Yes. I've got one. Go on. How many Israelis does it take to screw in a light bulb? Oh, how many? Zero. It's already in the house they stole. Oh, my God. That's anti-Semitic, Neil. No, it's not. It's anti-Zionist. Oh, sorry. Important distinction. That's Don't ever let them conflate. We navigated it all the way through this without saying anything anti-Semitic. It's a joke. At the very end. Yeah. Well, that's the worst. It that, said, how many Israelis? I didn't say Jews. That's the worst kind of anti-Semitism is when it's, when it's framed as a joke. It's, it's even more hurtful. Well, well, come on. Sasha Baron Cohen. Throw the Jews down. I didn't. Neil. He, he, it's his song. Neil, 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 Neil. Listen, a ham sandwich walks into a bar and orders a beer. Uh, is there fries with that? A bartender says, sorry, we don't serve food here. <laughs> All right. Anyway. bad. Well, you know, it's better than your anti-Semitism. Your rampant anti-Semitism. Um, so... That's enough of that for this week. What are people saying? Did they? Uh, they're lolling. They're lolling. Well, you got to loll a bit because what else are you going to do? <sighs> you go mad otherwise. Nonsense. I'm telling you, people, just remember it's all clown shoes. It's all nonsense and clown shoes. And yeah, real people, especially vulnerable, innocent people and children, are suffering and dying at the hands of these psychos, but um, it can't last forever and it won't last forever. And there'll be their own, own undoing in the end. And we just have to try and avoid the collateral damage, you know, avoid being collateral damage in the in the in the disaster that they create, basically, because they will create a disaster because of their hubris and their arrogance and their psychopathy. Psychopathy. Anyway, amen. So we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Thanks for watching, listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back next week with another one. Until then, have a good week and keep our country. See ya. Thanks for watching. Bye, all. Can't stop the signal now. Mm-hmm.